Hi, welcome to Ask Fordina with Dr. Allison Veit. Today we're talking about enactments and the ways in which our scripts internalized in early life are played out later in life. Today's episode will be talking about a familiar kid's pastime, cops and robbers. This first season of Ask Freudina is all about enactments. In this episode, we will be taking a closer look at the cop-robber enactment, where one person lays down the law and the other has the choice to comply or defy. As always, for a more detailed theoretical explanation of this enactment, feel free to listen to episode two of Freudina's Shrinkthink, which should be right next to this episode in your podcast player. Hi, Freudina. Um, I am a 45-year-old, and I have a 12-year-old son. Uh, We live in New York City, and I'm calling because he's constantly on screens, like during school, like online school, and later on during the day. And that's basically the happiness of his life. Uh, My husband and I have been more willing to allow him to play during the week, but uh, it's happening more and more. Uh, and we don't really know how to stop him um, because that's basically the only thing he has to do the whole day. Uh, sometimes we go out for walks, uh, but it's complicated now uh, being locked down and also having like the, the, the protests outside of, of our building, etc. So we just uh, wanted to know if you had any suggestions on how to reduce his screen time or if we just should just understand that these are critical times and we have to be more open. Uh, We're concerned about like his eyes sometimes are even red of all the time he spends in front of screens. Um, So we would really appreciate any help. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, you're describing a very, very common scenario uh, that I get very often at this point uh, with most of the American population on screens or Rather, I should say, much of the world population who has internet access on screens. And certainly kids trapped at home without their usual socializing, uh, using Zoom, Skype, and other such platforms for school, but also every possible video game and social media platform uh, just to stay alive and vibrant. So, of course, there's a lot of concern on the fact that kids don't really have an in real life anymore. And IRL is not really a thing so much as a screen life. Uh, Maybe some way of saying avatars are really the main way we exist. And it is concerning for you and certainly concerning to most of us, you know, what kind of real life relationships can kids have after this? And what part of normalcy can we keep in mind uh, when so much is going on? Um, So I think those are the concerns that um, underlie your questions. Um, The other thing is it's obviously just bizarre to walk in and see a kid just staring into space at one dot uh, for a very, very long time. Something about the lack of mobility and the fixation on just one thing, the visual alone, you just get a sense that that's just not the right way to be. Um, We don't have that many choices in some sense, as you say. At some point, your question said, um, can you give me some advice on how to reduce his screen time, or maybe I should just be more open to it. 
so the answer is really going to be um, what can you do to reduce the screen time? Your question sort of begs the idea that perhaps I'm a good advice giver, so I might be able to give you techniques on how to get them off screens. And that's possible. I could probably do some of that. But from the way you present yourself, it seems to me that you're kind of a person who probably has looked into those tips and tricks and all those kinds of hacks. So I'm going to think about it a little bit differently here. Um, you, in effect, are falling into the enactment that I usually call the law enforcement versus uh, do the right thing citizen paradigm. Or sometimes you can think of it as the cops and robbers paradigm, where there's one person who's describing uh, what's the morally, ethically, legally correct thing to do, and the other person's sort of caught out, unable to really argue with the cop, in this case you, uh, but in another way, feeling like you can't really argue with the person, but in fact, you're not going to really be able to do what they want. Very common for the robber to feel, I really wish I were like the cop. I'd like to want to be doing the right thing. I like to desire what you desire. But in fact, I desire something else. So I'd like to desire to be the kid who's not sitting uh, playing Minecraft all day. But in fact, I'm not that kid. I desire to play Minecraft all day. And, you know, how could I be? I'd like to be a kid who was doing constructive things uh, in the kitchen or, I don't know, sports running in my room in place or, I don't know, helping my sister with my, their homework or learning Ugaritic. Um, but in fact, I'm not that person. I'd like to be that person, but I'm not. So the sort of effect on the kid is they feel bad about themselves in some way that their morals are less than the parents. And the enactment becomes something about the parent going on and on and on about the law is or the right thing to do is this. And the kid sort of justifying something they don't really believe in. And that becomes a problem. Um, you can see like, uh, when this, you know, this doesn't sound like the case you present, but you can see this, you know, if you observe your friends that are other parents, that there are many people who are always explaining very carefully to a child while a certain thing is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And they're the kinds of things that you can't argue with. Like it's always the right thing to do to share with somebody. It's a kinder thing to share your toy than to enjoy it yourself. So kids raised with these kinds of moral scripts can't really justify why it's like their own birthday present and they want to enjoy it alone first. Uh, not everything is objectively fair that makes sense. Uh, when you share your M&Ms, you have objectively fewer M&Ms. So unless you objectively really, really enjoy the act of sharing itself, when you share, you're acting out of a sense of morality about the way you want the world should be, full of people like you who share a lot. We're helping to create such a world. But when you tell your kid it's actually more fun to share, and they don't, in fact, like to share, it's not more fun, that creates a kind of sense inside the child that they can't trust their own gut feeling. Now, that's really important. What I mean by that is if the kid has basically good parents, and the parents are telling them something is true, and the kid doesn't feel that it's true, it creates a deep insecurity in the child that they can't be good judges of their own reality. And if you basically look up and you're told the sky is green, you look down, you're told the grass is blue, and you just don't see it that way, and this happens enough over and over, it creates inside the child a way of not really being to validate 
their own experience. In later life, you see this many times. The people sort of don't trust their own gut because their gut feeling was not that reliable in early life. And this kind of happens here, that there's a sort of moral gaslighting. A child has a sense that something is wrong with what they're being told by the parent, but they can't quite name it. So they often feel a ton of guilt for feeling badly about it. And this leaves the kid with the experience of being a rule breaker, a criminal or a bad person who doesn't care about civil society. It becomes very entrenched, the sense that they're not a good guy. And that's really a shame uh, because in very good people, they can often be, be uh, besieged by these feelings of guilt or shame um, that, that stay with them for a long time. Um, you know, this kind of thing happens over and over. But what I'd say for your own situation is that helping your kid understand uh, the grays and not just the blacks and whites of every situation are really important. So the objective comments of it's really a bad idea to spend so much time in front of the screen, um, those are the kinds of comments I'd stay away from. Um, the positive comments how it's a wonderful idea to have I don't know, half an hour of exercise and half an hour of calling friends on the phone and 20 minutes of calling your grandparents or your cousins. So of inserting the kinds of positive things that you can and giving him, him specific things to do, uh, that sounds wonderful. Um, but sort of just saying don't be on your screen is a way to entrench in him a sense that every time he does something for pleasure or maybe when he's just bored, uh, there's something about it that he should feel guilty about. And that's a problem that may well plague him into adulthood. So what I'd say about screen time is, well, screen time is one of many wonderful things that we do. Uh, right now in life, it seems like we need more screen time because we don't get out that much and we can't go to school as much and things like that. But obviously, different times, different circumstances. Uh, when I was pregnant with you, I wasn't on my feet as much. And now that I can be, I exercise so much. And sometimes my eyes hurt a lot, so I don't read as much, and I listen to music more. And now is a time that we can't get out as much, so we're watching screens much. But a sense that this isn't the be-all be and end-all, that this normal is not the only normal, but it's one of several normals, and that throughout time we try to go with the flow a little bit. And again, my own advice on this is to feel no guilt yourself about where your child is. You're doing the very best you can. And it may be the very best you can is red eyes to fill his day as much as possible with things other than screens. And the rest of it is if he has two or three times more screens than he does otherwise to make him feel really good and wonderful about spending his time on screens uh, because having him fa feel bad about something he's doing anyway uh, really leads to no good. Anyway, I know that that's a very complicated and not fun thing to hear. But it may, in fact, be the best thing that he can do right now and the very best that you can do right now. And, in fact, there's a real value to being okay with a not great solution and being able to rest comfortably with it. And if you can show him that, that you're able to rest comfortably with this not perfect solution, it'll go a long way toward his own mental health and his ability to do things when he can and to do even better when the opportunity presents itself. So thanks for calling in, and I know that's not exactly what you were hoping for, but I'm hoping it was helpful. Hi, Ferdina. I'm a heterosexual woman uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. I have a question. 
Uh, it's been an argument I keep getting into with my best friend over and over again. I have a boyfriend who's an airline pilot, and uh, normally he would just return to my apartment for about a week at a time, as his rotation, pardon, rotation has him flying for a number of days in a row and then having time off. Uh, with everything since COVID, the airline has changed his schedule, and now he has longer stints with me where he stays with me for longer periods of time in between his flying schedule. Uh, we're careful to pay attention to reasonable rules about health and safety, uh, but I always have a vague sense of them doing something really terrible when we spend time together, and I feel that uh, when um, I talk to my best friend about it. Um, you know, she's always reminding me that even the most careful and socially responsible people, um, you know, make a point to not see people. And for me to not see him would be a very socially responsible thing while the pandemic is going on, because at the very most, it'll save lives. And because he's a pilot, he has a lot of exposure to many different people whenever he goes back to work and whenever he flies. And with his exposure to crew and people in the airport and other passengers, you know, he's exposed to many more things than I am, you know, with like my own, like, you know, lifestyle and schedule right now. And whenever I point out to her that the airline has protocols that are overseen by the government and the airline, and that he and I, in turn, are super careful to use common sense with the guidance of our physicians. She always makes a point to say that there's no way to be too careful. And she tells me that my attitude is really irresponsible, that instead we should just text and video chat until this is all over. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little unreasonable uh, for her to ask that of me, because who knows how long this can last. Um, but, you know, sometimes when I talk to her, I end up going on long tangents party tangents explaining why it's not dangerous and it bothers me that I feel the need to justify myself um, and I just don't know why I can't seem to shrug it off um, and also I do just want to ask like you know does it make sense you know for her to make this argument with me because she has a sister who she sees pretty regularly and she doesn't feel about that maybe because she's related to this person and this and like the pilot that I know is my boyfriend uh, I'd love your input thank you Hello there, girlfriend of Pilot. Uh, good to hear from you, and really glad that you called in with this question. I think it's a really important question that's quite representative of what's going on in our country now. We're into, I guess, what's been dubbed uncertain times, where the certainty of even small things, going to the grocery store, going to school, going to work, hugging your friend, hugging your neighbor, hugging a grandchild, hooking up, all the things that people used to used to think about in a very different kind of way, taking some for granted and really enjoying the heck out of others, are now putting our physical sense of safety into question. And it's really hard to make these kinds of decisions. With that in mind, I don't think it's so surprising that your friend had this over-the-top reaction to your pilot boyfriend coming in and staying with you uh, between flight assignments. Uh, from what I can tell, it sounds like you are his home. Uh, you are his pod. I'm not quite sure of that. Sounds like he might be living elsewhere as well. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but there are lots of people in our country who have jobs that take them outside of the home. And we're at a time where people are having to make really difficult decisions about how to live. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, and a judgmental kind of way of being where we 
underscore uh, physical safety in regards to the coronaform virus um, and nothing else is just not a possibility. In order for the world to function now, we need people who are out in the hospitals and who are out delivering the mail and a thousand other things. And as the country opens up more and more, we'll need people doing other things that require, what do you know, interaction between humans. Uh, These are really complicated questions, both politically and morally and health-wise, and not something I'm going to get into right now. Uh, My views are really just my own. Uh, What I do want to get into is the unpacking of this baggage, the psychoanalytic ways of seeing the kinds of scripts that are being enacted here, and the ways in which our own insecurities and fears sort of play out with other people. Uh, So here you have a scenario that you've given me where you and your pilot boyfriend are concerned about health and safety, uh, him working outside of the home, and you being mostly in your home and him being very careful between uh, times that he's with you to do the best he can and to take precautions, I'm just listening to what you said, uh, when he does come back and and visit with you. And I think that the best health and safety advice that we've gotten so far is to limit contact, especially in-person physical contact or intimate contact, uh, to as small a pot as we can. And it sounds like you're not at all questioning how much of safety you're taking into concern, but rather that your friend is calling you and she's concerned, saying that you shouldn't be with him. And of course, uh, anything we do, any level of safety that we do, there's always an additional layer of safety uh, which we could be considering, right? So if we take cans in from the outside and we take the cans and we even boil the cans and we take them, they cool them and do a thousand other things to each can of food that we eat, there are probably 15 other health precautions we could be taking with them. And I know people who aren't eating any produce because it could be that someone sneezed on the produce and we don't know how long the produce can hold germs, etc., etc., there are people who decided not to leave their house at all because of their own health needs and trying to be careful, uh, ultra careful about their safety, either because of their age or pre-existing health conditions, or just because their risk to reward ratio makes it them feel like they're okay at home and they don't want to get out. And on the other side, we have the cost of being inside the home. None of these things are um, anything that I'm really adding here, other than to say that it's odd. I mean, if the pilot and you were married and he was your husband, would your friend be telling you the same thing, that you shouldn't see your husband indefinitely? Is the fact that he's your boyfriend sort of different in some way? I'm just posing that in theory. I guess we could construct a universe where we all lived in separate pods and didn't see one another at all until this was over, and yet at some level it kind of gets absurd. If you're not paying enough attention to it, of course, you end up endangering the self and well-being of others. So why is this such a puzzle for you? Why is it so difficult? I think once again we're finding ourselves in the cop and robber enactment problem. Uh, as you might remember, what I said is that uh, somebody uh, who is acting like the cop is there explaining very carefully why something is the right thing to do and something else is the wrong thing to do in a way that there's no really arguing with that demands. The person has logic on their side. And yes, it is true 
that if you do not see your pilot boyfriend at all, it is safer than seeing him because he's been exposed to things. Even if you mitigate risk a whole big bunch, and many different health departments have talked about mitigation of such things. There's really good guidelines out there. I'd recommend, in particular, the New York Health Department has a wonderful guidelines out now. Um, but even with that, um, mitigation is not the same thing as absolute certainty. And absolute certainty means not seeing someone. So as the cop, as the law enforcement agent, yes, absolutely, seeing anybody brings along with it health risks and being alone in a bubble uh, brings along with it health risks, I'd say, uh, but not corona ones, a whole bunch of other ones. We do know a lot about uh, isolation studies and the cost of being alone for long periods of time and the ways in which it shows up similarly in brain scans something which I've alluded to in other podcasts. Um, But again, uh, real physical pain seems to be uh, similar both in emotional pain and in the physical pain. So here we are, you have an enactment where she's acting like the the cop and you're feeling like the robber. You're feeling like the rule breaker. And the more that she moralizes to you that you should not be seeing him, the more and more you're feeling that she's right. And how can you argue? It's definitely much safer. And you're falling into that kind of pattern, which is no good for you. Um, I'll remind you again that we want to live in a society with rule-oriented people who care deeply about another. But if you experience your friends caring about you as a rule for rule's sake, that, you know, you have to be careful, exclamation point, exclamation point, it's not going to be taken in by you as someone who actually cares deeply for your being and is weighing carefully the pain of not being with your boyfriend for months and months and months on end with potential health risks. I don't hear anything in your tone uh, that says that she's being deeply empathic and thinks that you're not being careful and that your assessment of exactly which precautions is the problem. Rather, she thinks, underline, 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 you should not be seeing him. And that, to me, is really some sort of enactment with her taking on all the more moral tones of it and you feeling like the chastised child or the uh, rule breaker. Um, I guess, you know, another part of it that seems to happen, and I don't know if it's going to happen in your relationship, but I'm going to bet it will, um, is that this kind of posture often manifests itself in other subtle, that this posture may manifest itself in other subtle forms of contempt towards the individual, sort of a feeling that someone has to catch the other person before another transgression occurs. Uh, It can take the form of lecturing someone on their unethical natures of their behavior or their past transgressions, or you may just develop a sense that you don't want to talk to her about certain things, that you keep certain things from her, like when you go to CVS one extra time because you needed a prescription and she'll lecture you as to why you couldn't get it delivered. But if you find yourself kind of hiding things from her, that's really not a good scene. That's the that's the kind of ways in which we begin to realize that we are being controlled by someone else. And we know that in a controlling relationships in heterosexual intimate couples, it becomes uh, something very dangerous, but it often starts out by one person manipulating another by finding out what they are and what they're doing and steadily telling them it's wrong. So if you find yourself kind of hiding what you're doing, 
uh, because you don't want her contempt or you don't want her comment, you should be flagging it to yourself that you're definitely in this enactment. Um, I also want to say that in my experience, the reason people, good, good friends, let's call your friend Gloria, just for an example, just came up, the reason people like Gloria end up sort of lecturing people is because they themselves are conflicted about things and it's much easier to see it in somebody else rather than in themselves. Uh, So you mentioned that Gloria is seeing her sister and I'm guessing that Gloria really can't take in the dangers that she's exposing herself to although she might have a very close relationship with her sister, so she isn't able to break off that relationship with her sister, or maybe a practical reason to see her sister, maybe her sister is ill, maybe they share a babysitter, but in some ways she's unable to see her own stuff. So she's projecting that onto you, seeing the risk in you rather than seeing it in herself. And that, again, is a very common thing. Uh, So with her own self, she's taking on perhaps with other people uh, the role of the person who's being lectured to, rather than the person who's doing the lecturing. Uh, so I think you're doing a cop and robber thing uh, with your friend. Um, I think that it's a very, very, very difficult enactment to move out of. But once you see that there are no absolute rights or no absolute wrongs here, and that the secret to life is living in the grays, uh, I think you're going to go on to do fine things, figuring out your risks, making really good assessments, and perhaps even uh, giving Gloria a tiny bit of help uh, in, without an enactment, but in a loving, loving, kind way, without moralizations, uh, helping herself mitigate her own risk with her sister, not with contempt, not with I told you so, but with an actual sense that you care about each other, that it sounds like you've been close for a long time, and you want to see each other healthy and well for many years to come. That's all about that, um, other than to tell you that If you're caught in this kind of enactment, you might want to look into your own childhood or people that have been important to you who obviously in the past, whether it's been church leaders or teachers or parents, but some kind of authority figures in your past that have led you to feel that doing the right thing is always very important and giving you a sense that if you aren't exactly on the straight and narrow, there's a problem. If you start thinking about your past and the ways in which these things have been coded into your, your internal script, you'll be in far less risk to fall into these patterns, into these roles in the future, and you will be able to flip your own internal scripts. If you need help doing so until then, give me a call. You know where to find me, 212-784-6820. And now it's time for Thoughts from the Couch with my friend, Dr. Michael Singer. Hello, Dr. Mike. How are you? I hope the week's been good to you. This is Freudina. Hey, Freudina. It's been a good week. It's been, it's been as good to me as it could be under the circumstances. And how about you? How have you been? Oh, it's been totally interesting. That's all I have to say, because last week I promised you that when you were talking about death, destruction, and genocide, we would get to sex. And I did not know if you would hang in there for the whole week, but I am full of ideas and have been basically been brimming with anticipation all week. What about you? I've been thinking about that since last week, uh, the importance of talking about sex and health, especially under, under these particular circumstances. You know, I... I uh, yeah. 
New, new, no, York. no, totally interested. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, I, and it, it renews itself because look, we're all thinking about sex because how can we have sex now? Those of us who are not living with a sexual partner are having difficulties with this. Um, masturbation may not be quite enough. So how do we do it? So New York State, New York City rather, uh, released some rules for safer sex during COVID. And it made me think of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that some of the things they suggested were topics of uh, hookups before COVID. Uh, you would see them on Grindr or some of them you would see in gay porn from the past. And now they're being, uh, they're bring, they're, they're being brought up. They're being given a certain kind of wonderful legitimacy because they also happen to possibly be safer. Uh, and so I you wanted, and I have, yeah. yeah, so you and I have talked, I mean, we talk often about uh, fetishes and other kinds of kinks, uh, fetishes being sort of a more moralizing tone or a sort of uh, tone used in, in diagnosis and kink being much more sex positive way of reframing the particulars that turn other people on, um, even if they don't turn on you yourself. And we are really interested in uh, understanding kink and in people exploring those things that uh, make them happy and feel good and either um, enable other people to feel good or, or cause no harm, as opposed to the kinds of sexuality which is damaging to others. Um, and I think we've often struggled, you and I, in conversation about like removing a, a, a sense of moral judgment. Um, and I think a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of uh, people struggling with this is that they have a vague uh, moral sense that they shouldn't be having sex. And that's something to do with the pandemic or health, right? How could I be, you know, having sex during this time? And an equal and opposing force of I need to have sex right now. I haven't touched another human being in forever, right? So yeah, well, I'm seeing a lot of those opposing forces internally. Um, and, and me really speaking to people about can we talk about um, this from a practical point of view? Uh, what actually uh, makes sense here in terms of health and the moral sense, those kinds of feelings that are coming up, uh, are these actually psychological problems or are, you know, are there, are they parts of you that are feeling distress um, or are they real health concerns? Um, and, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about. Um, some of the, some of the fetishes we've talked about are actually fantastic, right? Because, you know, COVID has brought with it a whole host of things as I think we've talked about a little bit. Uh, things that are or have been around and about and are now finding a new uh, a, a new space for them. Uh, do you mind resharing with me uh, a couple of the ones that you've thought of and, and, and found this week? Sure, I'd love to. I think what's interesting is I'm going to mention a couple of examples, and they're examples of what might have been considered kinks in the past, but what do you do when the circumstances have been completely reversed and a kink could save your life because it could allow you to have uh, pleasurable sexual activity, and yet then we wonder. Of course, maybe you and I will talk about afterward. How do how do we how do we manage the usual guilt that goes with it? Um, one particular uh, one particular um, it might have been regarded as a as a as a as a kink or 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 dissociative issue would be the issue of glory holes. Now, New York City in its in its uh, in its suggestions that came out uh, last week suggested that walls could be sexy, suggesting that glory holes might come back into fashion. And what it made me think of specifically is that on, 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 on gay porn uh, sites, pre-COVID, there was often uh, a setup for glory holes, which was 
uh, an ostensibly straight man would be lured into using a glory hole by a girl and a, 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 a woman, a young woman who would entice him through the glory hole and say, you know, come this way. You are going to get the most wonderful oral sex performed that you could ever imagine by me, Patty, or whatever her name would be. But then once it started, what would happen is the woman would step away and a man would take her place. And so the whole, uh, the premise, the, 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 the MacGuffin, you might say, of the glory hole was that this man was unknowingly, unwittingly being serviced by another man, which would be you know, Mike, legends. It's, it's so, so interesting because uh, the uh, dichotomy you're setting up there is between a woman seducing someone and then it becoming a man and this kind of uh, bait and switch kind of thing. But I noticed, of course, your Freudian slip which I think you probably picked on yourself between a girl and a woman. And I'm wondering what you make of that there. One being a, a sort of uh, a, a, a uh, you know, when we're, we're talking about the slippage between um, legality, morality, and um, uh, pedophilia versus um, LGBT, LGBTQ issues. And I'll mention that you're, you've been an out and proud gay man for how many years? Well, um, I would say since about 1974, however many years that is, many years. Yes. Um, so it's it's sort of interesting to me, this, this slippage I was talking about between when people feel that they're doing something wrong or bad, um, there seems to be a way in which we uh, categorize, yes, you know, okay things and negative things. And they fall into this, these large categories rather than into these parsed out things. So there's something about the way in which the person was tricked into thinking that he was receiving oral, oral sex from a, a woman or rather than a man, that that was the um, way in which he basically was engaging in non-consensual exchange, the thought of somebody else, and that there's a way in which the word girl came up, and that, of course, would be uh, pedophilia, which uh, has both clinical and legal issues. Uh, but in our minds, right, this slippage and this sort of teasing um, apart what, what has and, and hasn't been consented to um, makes it all a little bit murky. Um, what do you think of that? As, Ali, that, that is a great, that's a great description of that, of, the, of that slip. And I wonder that is there something in the anonymity that can scare us? The, uh, the, the sense of not knowing who's on the other side of the wall and could it be humiliating? And is, it, and is, it, is that a bad thing? Is somebody being taken advantage? My own, I think my slip, my Freudian slip was associating that, that sort of, that sort of trick to, other, as you say, other bad things that people do that are condemned like pedophilia. When in fact, when in fact this seems for some reason uh, like a common, a common theme in porn is someone being tricked into doing something that uh, unawares other people are then watching voyeuristically and getting off on watching. So one of the things I guess I really am interested in is this idea of consent and non-consent. Um, and you and I um, you know, have talked a lot about the ways in which what's great about our relationship is that um, we both seem to have a comfort within one another, with, with one another 
that we can uh, sort of share things and call things out without the usual, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Like you are an out and proud gay man, you make a slip between girl and woman, you correct yourself. And I'm just explicating it for the audience because obviously you and I've been through this a few hundred times, but there's no sense that I have to watch out for your ego. And there's no sense in which you have to be defensive. Uh, what one of the most wonderful things I think about being in pretty good mental shape, which is I think the point of the podcast and the Freudina brand, is that you should be able to look at these slips with curiosity and interest um, rather than with a sense of feeling bad about things. So you're defensive about being called out. Um, and I just wanted to point out to the listeners that this thing that happened organically between us that I said, huh, you said girl, then you said woman or lady or woman, something like that. You know, what's that about? This is what I think it, it, it's about. And you as a gay man are not getting overly distressed by why did I say girl? Why did I say woman? What legal implications does it have? Like none of your neurotic stuff is, is, is there. You're just really interested in, huh, what was that about? So that's perfectly, I think, when, I, when we talk about being lowering your defenses or not engaging in enactments. Uh, to me, that was an example of what you and I did successfully. But of course, if you have other thoughts on that, that was not successful. Uh, let me know because we're all into transparency, or at least that's what we're talking about. Well, I think one of, one of the major things that you bring to Freudina is a sense of being so clinically astute and so aware non-judgmentally and in a way that is not triggering. I find that to be very valuable in our friendship, as you say, that we can say things in a way that does not imply any kind of negativity, that does not, uh, that does not imply any kind of judgmentalism about personal proclivities. And that mm -hmm. is so, so important in these times when people are tending to be self-critical and depressed and anxious to be able to understand what it means to be also non-judgmental and just having a good time, but in a real way. Yeah, and I guess part of what I'm also thinking about, um, you know what's so great, great, Michael, when we're supposed to talk about sex, we talk about serious stuff, and we're supposed to talk about serious stuff, we talk about sex, and here we specifically were supposed to talk about sex, and here we are talking about serious stuff. So listeners who tuned in for the sex episode today, um, in Thoughts from the Couch, I apologize, Mike, we're going to have to do it next week. We owe that to the listeners since we're being serious, if that's okay with you. Um, but um, it's so interesting because what I, what, I, what I find fascinating is, you know, we're both so much more interested in the why of things that either our anxiety about it goes to the side. So it's, it's, it's a difference. Like call out culture is such that I think I'm just less careful with you. So therefore I get more interesting conversations. Like I don't think, to be honest, it would make sense for me to say something to a, a most gay friends of mine, men, unless I knew them well, like, hi, you just said woman instead of girl. They would become flustered. I would become flustered and the whole thing would not really invite any interesting dialogue. And, and I'm wondering about what, what you think about that. Um, I, I, I think, I think that it's, the, you're, you're right. It's the interesting dialogue that seems to be so important. Do we need to, do we need to justify our humor? Do we need to justify our lightness as if it's not enough? I think in our professional lives and also in our relationship, we, it, the, the why is important. The, the why I think is something we do in our professional lives, but it comes from the fact that we do it in our personal lives. And why can be a humorous question as well as a serious question. 
Now, I think it's sort of funny, for example, when uh, grown men refer to their girlfriends as girls, or even that we say girlfriends, or someone over 40, are they really having a girlfriend? Is it, is it, is it trying to sound younger? Is it trying to infantilize women? It's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting use of the word. I said girl, and suddenly I thought, wait, girl means someone under 18. How could that mm. possibly be? What could I have said? Um, and so the, the, the back and forth between why and how and what is so important, but how do we keep, the how is, how do we say it in a, in a real way, but something that allows the play of humor to have its, to have its, uh, have its role as well. So in co-op culture, like what is it about the way, you know, we're looking for interactions to be that I, you can say the word girl and I say, hey, wait, you said girl instead of woman. And um, what is it about that we're looking for that with using, using that as an example, that I can call you out on that without being feared of being called out myself that in some way I wasn't sensitive to your sexual identity um, and that you don't I don't have to worry about you being anxious and you don't have to worry about me being anxious um, I realize in the analysis maybe you become a little anxious or and such maybe invite that neuroticism but I guess there's something about the freedom of that that I'm looking for in other things um, and, and why is it that there is such freedom around um, the examination there do, do you have a sense of that is it because we've I, just known each other a long time or something we've else? We've known each other and we're both interested in motivation. Um, I, it didn't, what, what, when, you, when you brought up girl, woman, it made me interested in why I had said that. Is there a way to have a healthy and fun-loving interest in what caused me to do that without taking it as something that was just incorrect or silly or um, uncalled for, let's say? And it's, 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 I can, I, I, I want it to be a joyous experience to have that explanation, to have that investigation of why someone says something. And I think it's true professionally as well as personally. I know that you do that too. You're very out there from, from our many conversations with how you are with your patients. And I also try to maintain that similar playful, serious mix of how we wonder about these kinds of motivations. It, I, that kind of mindfulness is so important to maintain centeredness, to maintain our our, our sanity in this particular this crazy period. Mm-hmm. hmm Okay, so let's assume we're gonna wrap up here for today because we've done serious. Um, and it's okay next week. Can we recommit to sex? We're gonna do sex. Absolutely. Super fun, super crazy, super kinky sex. Are you on? I'm into Good. sex. All right, you're into sex. That's awesome. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. Michael Singer, uh, for joining us for, for Thoughts with Them from the Couch. Um, all right, see you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, I am a married male from New York, and my problem is I am married to a dentist who is currently not practicing because of COVID and the risks associated with COVID, but that is driving her crazy, being at home with the kids and homeschooling and cooking and cleaning, et cetera, Um, and she's really missing it and contemplating going back to work 
which I really do not want her to do because the risks to her profession are so high. And while, of course, it's a struggle to not be earning her income, uh, the amount of income she'd earn if she goes back, considering the patient load is relatively low and the risk is high, um, I don't want to uh, have a situation where she's putting herself at risk, where she's putting me at risk, where she's putting the kids at risk. And obviously, uh, my extended family, to the extent to which we would want to see my parents or her parents or siblings, the money that we would incur is just not worth it. But her sense of self uh, is very much tied up in her profession. And an inability to practice it for many months on end is doing damage to herself, the sense of, of well-being and uh, putting her at ill ease and therefore putting the, the whole family ill at ease. Uh, thanks. Hello there, super kind and empathic uh, husband of dentist. Uh, it was really great to hear your call. Uh, it's always nice to hear from spouses who care a great deal about their spouse's self-esteem and they're really sensitive to all the things involved in both their marriage and in the lives of their partner. It sounds like your wife's sense of being, what gives her lots of pleasure, uh, is her career being a dentist as well as being a wonderful wife and mom. Uh, so it's great to hear that you appreciate her so much and want wonderful things for her. Um, I think a way of hearing your call is how can my wife and I, both who care about our family, our health, our career, our parents, not enact some kind of enforcer slash rule breaker thing where both of our conflicts are split? So I become the voice of how could you endanger us? And she becomes the person who's endangering our family. What do I mean by that? I mean that you're both really on the same side. Both of you are living in a pod with your, yourself and your kids, and it sounds like you have extended family you care about, and you care about uh, your finances, and, and basically you have the things that you want aligned. It's not like you're on different sides of the court and representing different teams. You really have the same goals in mind, and that's wonderful because uh, most of the time when we're dealing with interpersonal problems, uh, there are people who... When they benefit, the other person doesn't. You know, if there's only one slice of pizza and I eat it, you don't get it. Uh, but here you have a situation where you're both really going to want what's best for each other because it selfishly benefits you and benefits your kids. And that's terrific. Um, I find here that when people have enacted this kind of enforcer slash enforcee um, paradigm, or what we call more generally sometimes the cop and robber paradigm or the ruler slash citizen paradigm where one person makes the rules and the other either attends to them or, or breaks them. Um, I like to think of this as sometimes the comply or defy problem so that uh, one person's making a rule like you can't go to work and the other person has no choices. It's a binary I'm going to comply with what the person's saying and not go to work or defy it and go to work. And that ends up being a huge problem in couples therapy where you find that couples who really have the same thing going on, let's say they both are dealing with a difficult mother slash mother-in-law, one person will go all the way and say she should live with us and the other person will go all the way and say, you know, let's move cross country. And what you find is internally both people are struggling with the same issues and they take on 
the internal battle that each of them are having, uh, often one of them just taking on the side of, let's go for it, we owe her that, and then for the other one saying, it's impossible, and sometimes they switch in the middle because it's such a conflict with such difficult things on both sides that there's really no middle ground, and that really can't be found as easily. I'm not quite sure how fully that's comprehensible right here, uh, but in case that wasn't, we'll get back to it in another episode. Um, here, it's just easy to see how this couple, who's getting along uh, very well now, uh, could have difficulty if they don't begin to really hone in on the fact that they both want the same things. And that's why I'm reiterating this over and over. You can see it becoming an argument that the husband's saying, how can you endanger our kids? And the wife's saying, how can you endanger my work? How can you leave us in this precarious financial situation if I don't work? And you could see almost that these arguments could develop. So it's great that the husband called in before the problems happened. So you, they, they can sort of think of it as a unit. We have the problems of basing um, our decisions on the health and well-being of our family, our financial constraints, our self-esteem, and all those other things. Uh, and this way, uh, you can stop it before the cop and robber thing comes out, before one sets down the, other, the rules and the other breaks them. Uh, you could also interestingly see how this cop and robber thing could be set down the other way. It could be the wife becomes the uh, rule setter, right, the cop, and the husband who becomes the robber. So the wife could be the one who says, you are endangering the well-being of my children by not allowing for us to take care of them financially and your obsessive control over health. And then the, then the husband's put in the position, the very same position he put his wife in, by saying, no, 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 um, I don't mean to endanger the uh, financial security of our kids by being overly cautious. Uh, I really mean the best of you. So I, it, you can really see in this example a great example of flipping the script, uh, that you can really engage in both sides of the roles if you're not careful. Um, and what you want to do here is not just switch roles into the enforcer and the enforcee, but rather to change the roles out altogether. So instead of being one person creates the roles and gets very anxious and the other one tries to break them, you want to create new roles entirely of two people working together, maybe a better model of both of you rowing the boat towards the same destination, maybe facing different directions so you can have different perspectives on what's going on, but you're both united even if you see different things a little bit, you're both united with the same goals. And with those kinds of roles that you really want the same thing, you end up having very different conversations. But again, you want to be careful here about the splitting. Um, okay, I just think this is a brilliant call, and I'm just so grateful for this husband who called in before things got dicey with his wife. I hope as things open up, uh, you end up both being able to return to your work and that your kids thrive and I'm really glad that uh, we can all uh, hopefully hear good news. Definitely call up as things open up and let us know how things are going. So I hope you've had a chance to listen to our callers of the day. They all called in with very different problems. 
but overall, you can see the kind of a dynamic we're talking about, uh, which I refer to in many different ways. But it's basically a cop and robber kind of thing. Someone enforces the law and someone's just not sure whether to break it or not. Um, and what I've alluded to in these responses is that this kind of enactment is one of the most common enactments because it's really a fundamental problem in human existence. We all have desires to stay safe by keeping rules, and we all have desires to break out of the rules and do things that are perhaps not within the norm of what we consider the right way to be. Uh, but life is just not very much fun if you are playing by the rule book every single day in every single way. If you never take a chance at doing anything, uh, you'd sit down and just really never move in some sense. Um, okay, how do we think of this? Um, in the dentist and his wife uh, paradigm, I started talking about this a little bit. You know, people with these kinds of scripts where they're supposed to do the right thing, and if they don't, and they're a bad person, are usually people with tremendous conflicts that these two roles are sort of pushing for space inside themselves. So they're the kind of people who often get yelled at by somebody else for not following the rules, and they feel guilty and bad about it, and then they often go yell at somebody else entirely, where they end up playing the role of the cop instead of the one who's just broken the rules. And the thing that I've been pushing during this episode to do is in terms of trying to flip your script here, uh, it's very easy to start and think about the kinds of things you can do that make, can make your life better. Uh, find the people in times where you feel that you're being pushed to do something and that if you don't do it, you're committing something uh, deeply immoral or illegal. And think about those moments and whether, in fact, it's such a binary. Are you, in fact, in a comply, defy moment? Or are there a thousand more choices other than just saying yes or saying no uh, that you can be considering? Another perspective to bring in here is oftentimes when you are very, very careful on one rule, you'll have a heck of a time uh, with the other rule. So, for example, people right now who are trying to figure out the really complicated calculus on how to open our country up, which we definitely need to do, but also to keep our citizens safe, which we definitely need to do, are taking into to account very complicated calculuses of economic downfall and the emotional and physical risks of, of not opening up. Uh, which are considerable, and a lot of mounting evidence on the high suicide rate, for example, among a thousand other illnesses that are have really become problematic with the closings of hospitals and uh, medical facilities, and the emotional uh, toll on people who've been socially isolated on the one hand, and on the other hand, opening up at a time when we have absolutely no virus and really very, very few measures to control the outbreak uh, also seems rather crazy. So here we are in a paradox or a conundrum with no good way out, but we find people very polarized on both sense of people being adamant that we should and adamant that we shouldn't on a thousand different points. You can think of this as a societal enactment where people on both sides are claiming that they, in fact, are the arbiters of law and the other people are rule breakers, are rule breakers. 
and are the ones that should be shunned and forced into moral compliance. Uh, but here we have two different camps of people really screaming for moral superiority and that they know the way. And very few in the middle, actually, who are trying to bridge both sides of things and perspective take. Uh, so you see that with anxiety, especially over COVID, which makes people extremely anxious, uh, people are less and less able to think between the, the two very specific margins. Um, and we fall into this dichotomy of feeling that uh, one person absolutely knows the law, one camp, and anyone who doesn't follow it is absolutely doing the wrong thing. So you'll find that with uh, freedom of speech on the one hand, right, and the right not to be triggered on the other hand. Uh, whoever is screaming for the right not to be triggered seems absolutely right when they're speaking. Whoever is screaming for the freedom of speech, on the other hand, is also 100% correct. Um, and you can see that when you're listening to one or listening to the other, you are in the position of being a person who, if you don't agree, you're morally corrupt. And you can feel that with both sets of speakers. Uh, so that's an example of entering in a paradigm where you really can't see outside of that particular enactment. Um, this can be applied to lots of other societal things and many other situations. And if you have thoughts on this, please feel free to blog or send in uh, questions. Um, and we'll take it up on future episodes. Uh, it's been great sharing this uh, day with you and this episode with you. Um, this is Fordina. And as always, uh, I'm here and trying to encourage all of you to flip your script. Thanks for joining me this week. If you want some suggestions of things that might be impeding your life and ways to think differently about them, check out for Adina's Brain Hacks. These five quick and easy brain hacks will give you some insight into why you do the things you do so you can start approaching your life with more control and a touch less crazy. Grab them at www.freudina.com backslash hacks. If you are enjoying the conversations we are having here on Ask Freudina, let me know. Head over to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. The more love we get, the more people we reach. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you in the next episode.